Salam everyone, welcome back to another Nurain episode. I need to find a new way to do that. But we've been saying that the past few episodes every time we open. I know, we're like, but we need to find a new way. And I don't think about finding a new way until <laughs> we start we recording. <laughs> and I'm like, it sounds we need to put like a poll out and be like, guys, help, help us. us out. Like there's gotta be something better. But um like I always say, as always, I'm your host, Essie, and sitting across from me is Sumaya. And today we are going to be talking about something very, very exciting. We're going to be talking about miracles in the Quran, miracles of the Quran, just miracles in general. And I think that this is a really um, fascinating topic for some people. This is really what roots them in their religiosity. This is what roots them in their deen and all of these things. Um, Something that brings a lot of people to Islam exactly, as well, yeah. like looking at the miraculous nature of the Quran. I mean, there's there's so many examples of it, right? Um, so that's just kind of what we're going to be discussing today, and we're going to take it from a bunch of different viewpoints. And of course, like I suggest that if you ever want to start, you know, becoming more connected with the Quran or just becoming more connected to your deen in general, I highly recommend just looking into the miracles, even just reading the Quran itself and seeing the way it's so beautifully worded and put together and the the structure of it as a whole, that in and of itself is a miracle, right? And once you realize that when you hold your Quran, you're holding a miracle, a, the best of miracles, you, you're going to feel much more attached to it. You're going to feel such a strong and profound um, connection with it. Um, so that's kind of like my little introduction. I don't think I have anything more to say about that. So I guess I'm just pass it over to Sumeya about, yeah. <laughs> so people always say that the Quran in and of itself is a miracle, that that is the biggest miracle um, of our ummah, right? Because the Prophet وسلم, was given so the sorry. Quran. And so, yes, the Quran is a miracle, but it also contains a lot of miracles. So I think that in this episode, we're kind of going to be talking about um, what inside of the Quran makes it so miraculous. And um, I know that Asil wants to take it from more of like a linguistic perspective. So I'll give her the ability to kind of do that. I want to go into a lot of the scientific miracles in the Quran um, because in this day and age, we find that a lot of people worship science in a way, even if they don't realize that that's what they're doing. They worship science, they worship scientific discoveries, and they're so quick to believe everything that's put out by these scientists, right? If a scientist or a number of scientists did not say that this is how something is, then it can't be, right? If science can't prove the existence of God, then there can't be a God. This is kind of the way that people think nowadays. Um, something super interesting that I'm going to get into a little bit later is the fact that, yes, the Quran in and of itself is not a science book. The Quran is never meant to be a science book. It's never meant to be a history book. But it's always consistent with the scientific discoveries that we find in our era. And it will continue to be that way because this book, this Quran, is timeless, right? It always applies. Um, something that I heard a while ago, and I'm going to try to find the exact quote in a little bit, but um, I think it was Sheikh Yasir Qadi, he was saying how the, the fact that the Qur'an and all of the scientific miracles in the Qur'an are consistent with 
scientific discoveries of our era. That is because Allah created us. He created the Quran and he is the creator of science. Mm -hmm. So of course, if the creator of science is going to be talking about science, of course, it's going to be consistent with each other, right? So I'll get into a little bit of that later. Um, but Asid, if you want to kind of start us off with when it comes to like the linguistic perspective, um, go ahead. I love how she's just <laughs> throwing me into this. I'm not prepared for this episode. So this is all kind of just from what I know from the top of my head for the most part. Um, but in terms of li- linguistic um, sort of miracles of the Quran, uh, where am I going to go with this? I want to start off with talking about Surah Al-Fatiha. And I think that, that that's that's the opening chapter of the book, right? Of the Qur'an. And that's something that often we say at least minimum 17 times a day. It's the most repeated words, uh, the most repeated words, chapters, whatever, of anything in, in, in history, right? But when you look at Surah Al-Fatiha, there is two different types of letters in Arabic, right? There are the heavy letters and there are the light letters. And so a linguistic miracle that I found to be absolutely fascinating is the fact that Surah Al-Fatiha, for the most part, is comprised of those lighter letters. In other words, it's easier to say on the tongue. It flows so beautifully, so easily, and that's because it's meant to be an easy surah to say because... I mean, think about it. When you're when you revert, you have to pray. You know, you have to start praying, and you have to learn these things, right? So, and what do you do when you first start praying? You say Surah Al-Fatiha, right? So it's something that's light off the tongue. It's easy. It's for anyone to be able that it's for anyone. Like anyone can be able to pronounce Surah Al-Fatiha. So I think that that right there is a linguistic miracle that I find to be pretty pretty fascinating. And I didn't. I actually just found about found out about this recently. I'm all tongue twisted today. But I found out about this recent, recently. Um, so I think that recite Surah Al-Fatiha to yourself right now, and you'll realize that it's, for the most part, it's all of those lighter letters. It's not any of those like super deep throat letters or anything like that. And subhanAllah, it's just part of Allah's divine wisdom. Another thing too is in the Qur'an, there are five challenging verses, right? And I think this is something we're going to refer back to a lot. But in these challenging verses, there's a couple throughout the Qur'an, but basically Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is basically saying, bring bring a chapter or bring something similar to this, essentially, right? Bring something similar to this and you won't be able to. He was challenging the poets of the time, right? Arabs are very, very eloquent with their, with their speech, with their words and all of these things. They were poets, you know? Uh, um, the best of poets, right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is challenging them and bringing them almost to like humbling them like, Bring something similar to this. Bring some some sort of speech, anything, even one, even one verse similar to this, and you won't be able to. And that challenge is still, still, still up to date, right? Even till now, like you cannot replicate the Quran in the way it is because of its grammatical structure, because of the fact that um, just of the way it flows and things of that nature. And so it stumped them. They were like, "What do you? What do you mean? Like how?" And they they couldn't do it. You know, subhanAllah. And I think one more mini fact, this is kind of like one more mini fact, I think that's really interesting just to get you thinking about the Qur'an and about the beauty of the, the words behind it is that I just recently learned this as well, but in English, there are a maximum of 600,000 words. And in Arabic, there is a minimum of 12 million words. And that that shocked me. And I, I was like, wait, like how... How is that even possible, right? 
And so that comes to show the profound nature and the beauty of the fact that the reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose Arabic of all the languages for the Quran to be revealed in. Because the Arabic in and of itself is such a, like, I don't want to say miraculous nature, but it's such an all-encompassing, I mean, language, but it is such an all-encompassing language. You know, it's very, it's very poetic it's very beautiful in in its nature right so he chose this language to reveal the quran to 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 express his words to all of humanity and that's why even when you read the quran right and you and you go through it and whether you're arab or you're not just listening to it even you realize it's something different there is something the way it flows is so it's so perfect it's so eloquent um and so all of these things, so I think just before we get really into this episode, these are just some facts to keep in the back of your mind that you can really say like, wow, like subhanAllah, like look at how magnis- magnificent our Lord is. Look at his His wisdom. Sorry. <laughs> uh, look at his wisdom and behind certain things. And these are just the basics and we can go more in depth later. But yeah. You mentioned the Arabic language and why Allah chose to send the Qur'an down in Arabic. And of course, only Allah really truly knows why he chose the Arabic language. Um, But when we think about it logically, we have to understand that the Qur'an came down to an Arab audience. It came down to an Arabic-speaking people. Um, And... I know that some people would argue and be like, well, not everyone speaks Arabic today, yeah. you know, and that's a very valid point. But the Prophet Muhammad was in the midst of Arabia, <laughs> like literally he was Arab and the people around him were Arab. And Arabic in general is a language that even before the Quran came down, uh, even before the revelation, they were doing poetry in Arabic. Because they spoke the language, but also because it's literally like one of the most eloquent languages ever. Mm-hmm. So even people who weren't Arab appreciated the Arab poetry, right? So I wanted to say that, but also there's an ayah in the Quran um, in Surah Fusilat, which literally when it comes to Fusilat, Fusilat means something that is like explained in a lot of detail. So this word is the name of a surah, but it's also mentioned in one of the ayahs. And I'm going to read the translation of this ayah, ayah number 44. Allah says, Had we revealed it as a non-Arabic Qur'an, they would have certainly argued if only its verses were made clear in our language. So Allah's already establishing the fact that if he had sent it down in any other language, these people would have been like, wait, this is not even like, what are you talking about? You know, why would you send down or why would you tell us about some book that is in a language that we don't even speak, mm-hmm. right? So then Allah says, what a non-Arabic revelation for an Arab audience, right? So it doesn't make sense. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Um, and then, yeah, so I guess that was just a point I wanted to make about the linguistics and why did Allah choose to send it down in Arabic? I'm sure there's more wisdom, right? I'm sure Allah has other wisdoms that maybe we don't know about, but this is one that's very explicitly mentioned in detail. Allah says that if he had sent it down in any other language and the people would have been like, this is not our language. We don't understand this. Why are you preaching this to us? Right? And even Allah says in a rhetorical question, a non-Arabic Quran to an Arab audience, that doesn't make any sense. Right? And Arabi, of course, is just a very special language in general. Um, I want to note that the Arabic in the Quran is is really unlike any other Arabic that we speak. 
And it's definitely even unlike the Fusha Arabic of, of, um, of today. And, and, and Fusha Arabic is like the Arabic, like the proper Arabic, because there's so many other dialects. But in the Quran, the grammatical rules and all of the things, it's a, it's a much higher level than even learning just Fusha Arabic in general. Um, so the Quran is definitely on a different um, a different pedestal. It's a very different level of the Arabic language, and it's it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any points about the linguistics that you wanted to add? I can get into some of the the rest of them um, later, just more in depth. But I think that I think that really, really, this just applies to life in general. But I think that my perspective of this has really changed when I started diving deep into the Quran. But recognize that nothing happens just because it's coincidental, right? Nothing happens because it's just like, that's just the way, oh, look, it just happened to work out that way. No, everything is created with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's divine um, sort of engineering. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is created part of this design, this this perfect, flawless design. We are part of that design. He has engineered and created us, right? I mean, if you look into our, like, somebody is probably going to talk about this later, I'm sure, but if you look into like, our bodies and stuff, and you can see all of the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from within us and all, the, all throughout all throughout everything, right? So recognize that, like, somebody is talking about, like, oh, it just happened for a, a like, it just happened, like, it doesn't make sense for a non- Arabic Quran to be sent down to the Arab people like that's not just like quote-unquote coincidence as some believe that's 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 part of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's divine wisdom so whenever you're approaching anything in your life recognize that this is part of his flawless engineering this is part of his flawless design and therefore I'm going to trust in it therefore I'm going to believe in it and therefore I want to learn more about it and when you have this change of perspective when you're looking into anything you'll come to see signs you'll 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 be you'll be able to actually fully see the light um so i just kind of want to put that out there just change your perspective and try to understand things from a different angle and things will become more i don't know clear i guess yeah well if you want to finish off with linguistics go ahead so that we can kind of get into science you want to just do the science okay it's good this is how you know that we don't plan this out before (laughs) we record we're like just to if you want to, or if you want me to go ahead. I feel ahead. like we should just go back and forth. Because I feel okay. like some of the things you're going to say, I'm probably going to okay. bounce off of. Okay. So, I... That's funny. We're just going... Whatever. So, when it comes to the science, um, the quote that I was talking about earlier was from Yasser Qadi, but I kind of wrote a little reflection about it that I want to share. So, like I said, the Quran is not a scientific book. It is not a scientific manual. It's not something that you are going to read as a proof of science, right? That's not the point of the Quran. The Quran is so much deeper. And inshallah, Ramadan is very soon. I think we are planning to just dive into the Quran this Ramadan. And so I feel like a lot of the episodes we're going to put out, if not all of them in Ramadan, are going to be based in the Quran. So you'll get to have a little bit more insight about tafsir and just like lessons from certain surahs. But for the purpose of this episode, um, there are several scientific miracles in the Quran that I want to mention. And I'm just going to see however many we can get through, (laughs) which, you know, whatever time permits. Um, But there are things that are absolutely fascinating. Something that we have to understand about the Quran is that Muhammad did not write the Quran. A lot of people think that. A lot of non-Muslims think that the Prophet 
peace be upon him, wrote the Qur'an, or he was making it up. That's That was a big accusation of the people at the time. You know, you're a crazy man, you've been overcome by certain things, possessed, whatever, you're making this up. Um, but Allah sent down the Qur'an. Those are Allah's words, and that's what we believe as Muslims, right? We don't believe that any person wrote the Qur'an. So if you think about when the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wasallam was a messenger when he was alive this is seventh century this is what 1400 and are we 45 or 46 years ago um so a long time ago before any technological advancements were made before there was you know structured grammar rules before all of these sciences whether it's sciences in literature or sciences in like the body biology chemistry whatever none of this stuff was a thing Right? None of this stuff was a thing. The enlightenment and all that stuff happened way later, right? Way later. So you think about how an illiterate man as well, the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was an illiterate man. He could not read and he could not write. He did not have that ability his entire life. Even after he became a prophet, he never learned. He never learned how to read or write. And that that honestly is a huge, huge wisdom. Um, and it, it's a big evidence of his prophethood as well, um, because a lot of people, if he could read and write, they could have very easily accused him, oh, you fabricated all of this. And I mean, they accused him either way, but it would have had a little bit more basis, right, if he really was able to. So you're thinking about the desert, Arabia in the seventh century. What do they know? Nothing. They don't know anything beyond what their eyes can see, right? They don't know these in-depth scientific things that we know today, that science has allowed us to discover today. So when you really think about this and reflect on it, you're like, well, yeah, who else could have written it, right? The Qur'an came down, what, so long ago? Again, 7th century Arabia. We are in 2024 right now. So many years ago. How could people in the desert know this, this stuff? And the answer is they couldn't. So it had to have some divine... Um, what is the word I'm looking for? It's, it's, it's a divine basis, essentially, right? So I wanted to read this reflection that I wrote um, about how the science or the sciences and scientific knowledge in the Quran never contradict one another because they come from the same source. So I said, science is Allah's creation and the Quran is Allah's speech. Therefore, the two will never contradict one another. Rather, they will continue to affirm one another. Just because we as humans do not know the mechanisms of a certain thing at the present moment does not mean that an explanation does not exist or that that explanation will contradict what we believe in the Qur'an. What's in the Qur'an is the truth, and even if we do not understand a specific... Wait, yeah. And even if we do not understand a specific mechanism mentioned in our holy book, we do not doubt what Allah said. Instead, we continue to use scientific methods to understand the concept, and we will find that what Allah told us and what we discover align, as has been proven time and time again through the many scientific miracles of the Qur'an. So I feel like this was a really interesting way to put it. Science is Allah's creation. The Qur'an is Allah's words. So how could they contradict one another? It's not possible for that to happen, right? And just because we don't understand something doesn't mean that there isn't a way to understand it. Doesn't mean that there isn't an explanation. Doesn't mean that like Astaghfirullah, Allah's wrong. 
Astaghfirullah, you know, just because a human being who's very, very capable of making mistakes thought that it was one way and the Quran says something or Hadith says something does not mean that the religion is wrong, does not mean that God is wrong. God doesn't have the ability to be wrong. And I'm going to just throw an example in here, okay? I'm just going to throw an example in and um, hopefully I don't get canceled, but whatever. Um, for example, Allah telling us that he created male and female. Okay, two genders. Clearly today we're seeing something very different than that, where even though Allah said two genders, now we have people coming out so many genders, <laughs> um, so many different things. Um, does that mean that Allah is wrong? No, astaghfirullah, it doesn't. It doesn't. And this is what having a moral compass consists of. No matter what everyone else is saying, you know what you're rooted in. So I wanted to give that brief introduction. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say. I can get right into some miracles if you want or if you want to comment. No, I think that I think that if we go like all linguistic miracles and all scientific miracles, it's just going to be like Asil talking for 30 minutes and Asumaya talking yeah. for 30 minutes. But to go off of that, you're talking about how science and the words of Allah don't... Um, they they can't contradict one one another wow okay they can't contradict one another and this is kind of a linguistic miracle and that's the reason why i'm going into it but a pure example of this is surat al-ankabut so surat al-ankabut it focuses on fitna right it focuses on um give me the definition because my brain is like fitna like trials yeah trials tribulations things that you have to face you know all of these things so that's what an ankabut means like a spider Right. So I was listening to this tafsir and I, I realized that like or it was taught it basically that there's a relationship between the tests and the trials in the house of a spider. Right. So it says in Surah Al-Ankabut, um, Ayah 41. And I, this is me really focusing on the parables in the Quran. And we did a whole entire episode about that, actually. Um, so it's, it's called what you don't bend. You Bend but not break or something like that? Bending, not breaking. Yeah, something like something that. Something along those lines. But in Surah Al-Hankabut, the, 40, the ayah 41, it says, The parable of those who take protectors other than Allah is that of a spider spinning a shelter, and the flimly, flimly, flimsiest of all shelters is certainly that of a spider's, if only they knew. Right? And so that right there, when you think about these parables and you really, really look into it, first of all, the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes things so clear, right? And if there's an ayah that seems like it's slightly not that clear, he clarifies it with another ayah or a hadith or something of the sort. But everything in the Qur'an is explicitly stated for us to understand, right? So then you're like, okay, what do you mean like the flimsiest of all shelters is certainly that of a spider? Like a spider, a spider web is huge, right? And it's, it's so intricate and all these things right but the reality is, is that we will become entangled in tests and trials the way spider webs entangle us right so insects don't see a spider web from far away but um insects don't see a spider web far away and the spider web is referring to all of these fitness that you might get caught in in this life right so you might not see it from far away and you're just speeding through life and you're going through and then all of a sudden you're trapped in this entanglement of of this spider web that can also that's a parallel to what happens in our lives right but the bigger the spider web the stronger right so fitna can take you away from the path but if you're strong if you are a human being you can walk through a spider web right compared to an insect right so then but also a spider web 
is weak if you're able if you have the ability to walk through it if you're able to strengthen your iman to a point where those fitnas might be right there but you'll be able to just pass through them with the help of allah when you rely on allah and nothing else you'll be able to just get through them so i think linguistic miracle of the self is just the clarity in the messages that are being conveyed because think about it if the entire quran was just all um, commandments and all of these things like okay do this and do that and do this and do that that would be a very astaghfirullah a very boring book to read right a very dry but the parables and the language and the way that stories are told in the quran it captivates you it makes you think wow how are you comparing someone that takes protectors other than allah with that of a spider web it's such an interesting concept right um and i'll give one more linguistic example and then unless somebody you have anything Go to ahead. say about that um so i was in uh, they're in Surah Al-Qalam. So Surah Al-Qalam starts off with the letter Noon. And so there was a scholar that once said that the letter Noon, if you add a little line to it, a little line to like the side of it, it almost looks like the little ink pots that you dip your ink in, right? Like that because they used to write with like ink and pen. Um, and Surah Al-Qalam means what? The pen. And it starts off with Surah Al-Noon. I mean, not Surah, the letter Noon. Right? So, so, and then the ayah goes on to say something along the lines of noon and by the pen in which everything writes. So, subhanAllah, you come to look at that and you're like, wow, I'm able to make this connection. That's crazy. There's a reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala started that surah with noon and not sad or alif lamim or taha or any of these things, right? There's a wisdom behind it. It's for you to be able to draw connections that you're from this life that you're, so you're able to understand it, right? So, or when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes those who have basically went astray in Surah Al-Baqarah, towards the beginning, he's talking about the hypocrites. And he's talking about how when lightning strikes, they're not, it basically blinds them. They're not able to see, right? And earlier, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala called them what? Deaf, dumb, and blind, right? So I think that when we look at these parables and we're able to, we're able to see examples of it within our own lives, that in and of itself is a linguistic miracle. So it goes back to the compatibility. Yeah. For sure, and I actually do want to comment on that as well. First, because you were talking about those huruf muqatta'a, those letters that start off certain surahs, whether it's alif lam mim, alif lam ra, alif lam mim sa'id, ta'ha, yasin, sa'id, qaf, whatever, noon. Um, that in and of itself is a miracle, right? No one knows what that means. We don't know why Allah started a surah with a few letters or one letter or two letters. Um, but that is essentially another proof of the Qur'an's miraculous nature and God's divinity. Allah saying, look what I can do. Can you do that? And it's not just putting letters together. Because anyone can just say like, bat, jim, hat, or whatever. You know what I mean? But does it go? Does it rhyme? What is the med? You know, how does it flow? So it's a, just another way to prove to the people like you actually can't come up with something like this. And this goes back to a point as well that we don't always have to understand everything, right? We don't need to understand what those huruf muqatta'a mean for us to believe. It's enough that they're there, right? And with that, it's like, do you believe or do you not believe? And Allah says in the Quran, like, do you believe in certain parts of the book and then disregard others in terms of the Jews, I believe? Mm -hmm. So is that how we're going to be? We're going to be like, oh, well, I don't under I don't understand in my limited human capacity with this mind that doesn't have like, you know, unlimited capacity for knowledge and, and all of that. Am I going to base my understanding 
off of this very fragile mind? Or am I going to think beyond that? Right? Allah is the one who gave you this intellect, but he didn't give us an unlimited capacity. We don't know everything and we're not meant to. It's a test of faith of whether or not you're going to trust. That's a tangent. Anyway, you brought up the parable of the spider. And that reminded me of something that um, I also wrote a reflection on a little bit ago. And going back to that ayah, because I think it's also very powerful. It doesn't have anything to do with miracles, but <laughs> but um, linguistically, you took it from a completely different yeah. standpoint. So I kind of want to add my perspective um, and the perspective of like the tafsir that I was listening to. So here... Again, Allah saying the parable of those who take protectors other than Allah is that of a spider spinning its shelter. And the flimsiest of all shelters is certainly that of a spider if only they knew. So in this very powerful parable, Allah is showing that the spider's web was never meant to be a form of protection for the spider. Right? The spider's web is not there to protect the spider, but it's there to catch the food of the spider. It's there to entrap the insects, the vermin, for the spider to be able to eat, right? So Allah is comparing disbelievers to the spider. And you're kind of like, okay, how? Like, what's the relationship here? But Allah compares those who don't worship him, those who don't believe in him, to the spider that's spinning its web, right? And as we all know, the web of a spider is very easy to break through. We have all had many spider webs in our houses or in our cars or wherever. And what do we do to get rid of them? We literally just swipe at it and it's broken. That's it. We swipe at it. Doesn't have to be that hard and it's broken, right? So the spider shelter is not a strong shelter because it's not meant for protection. And that's how the disbeliever relates to the spider, right? The disbeliever, the state of a person who takes other than Allah as a protector, as a wali, as a guardian, right? Their shelter is going to be so fragile. It's not going to be rooted in anything. I feel like I keep saying that in all these episodes, but it's not rooted in anything. So they spend their entire lives catching and absorbing all of these thoughts and ideologies, whatever's trending, whatever's popular, whatever's going around, you're just catching it absorbing it and it's not really of any benefit to them on the day of judgment so this person comparing them to a spider they're just sitting there catching everything that's that's going around absorbing it trying to be like this and follow up with this trend and do this like this person and they have all these practices that are not based in anything substantial so it's very easy for them because they're not rooted in anything to fall apart, just like the house of the spider, right? So I think that this actually is a miracle of the Qur'an that we can reflect on it. You know, that we don't just have one single meaning for for verses. There are some verses that are verses of ruling, and they do have one specific meaning. This is the ruling, right? But for the majority of the Qur'an, like Asil said, the majority of the Qur'an is not just rulings. Some stories, but also some ayat that Allah wants us to just sit there and reflect on. How do we apply it into our own lives? And many times in the Quran, Allah poses these questions of, Right? If only they were to think. 
If only they were to reflect, and sometimes Allah specifies that certain things are for those who are ulul al-bab, those people who are going to reflect. That is really a foundation of our faith. Are we going to reflect or are we just going to like let things pass us by? Even if, even if you're someone who reads the Quran, are you going to read it and just like read for the sake of reading or memorize for the sake of memorizing? Or are you going to recognize the miraculous nature of this book and be like, I'm holding a miracle in my hands. I am speaking God's words. What is Allah trying to tell me? And the fact that we can take these interpretations and not even just interpretations, but like certain verses could be verses of comfort for me, but be verses of fear for other people, depending on the situation that you're in. The Quran is speaking to you, but are you listening? Right. And so I just think that it's um, it's another miracle that you can reflect on these words, that there's emotion behind them. Right. And this is kind of a tangent. But um, back in Dhul Hijjah, we were there was an event at the masjid. It was like a women's qiyam night. And we have a female scholar here who was talking about the story of Ibrahim and his wife and his son that he had to leave in the desert. And she gave us a comparison of this story in the Bible versus the story in the Quran. And when we were looking at the Bible verses, and I mean, no hate to anybody, honestly, but like, it's so monotone. The Bible is so monotone. There is no emotion behind it. But when you read the Quran, you feel, right? And Asil was talking about this a couple episodes ago, I believe in our music episode, how your heart is supposed to tremble, your skin is supposed to shiver. That's the response you're supposed to have when you're reading the Quran, if your heart is awakened, if your mind is there, if you're reflecting constantly. So are we regarding the Quran as a miracle, right? Or are we just like, whatever, doesn't matter? No, I love that a lot. Um, I feel like I've said so many different things. Like, do you want me to say another one or you want to go into your side? Girl, go ahead. This episode is literally all over the place. <laughs> Sometimes it's just like that. Okay, well, something that I found absolutely um fascinating and this kind of goes back to the quran and really reflecting on it but i want to talk about surah yusuf real fast and then i want to talk about surah al-baqarah because there's something in common with the both of them and when you realize these things this for me was an eye-opener i feel like i say that for every single thing but this like every single time you learn something new it almost feels like you're renewing your faith in some mm. some way shape or form right and so surah yusuf is described at the beginning of the surah as Ahsan al-Qasas, the best of stories. Now, one might think, okay, well, does that mean just within the Qur'an or does that mean with all the stories? No. When you come to realize the depth Surah Yusuf has with its grammatical flow and all of these things, you'll come to realize it is the best of stories. When Allah SWT says something, it's al-haq, it's the truth, right? So, okay, why is it described as the best of stories? Not only is the story of Surah Yusuf so, I guess, so... It's from beginning to end, right? You learn about him. And I think that's, I, I believe Surah Yusuf is the only surah that talks about a prophet from the beginning to end, like the whole encompassing story, right? But also, the way it's structured. So Surah Yusuf has 111, 111 verses, and it spans, I think, 14 pages. Now, of those 111 verses, there are... Um, 90, 98 verses of them are 28 scenes, right? So 28 scenes, of those 28 scenes, 14 of them are for the conflicts that Prophet Yusuf faces, and then the other 14 scenes are for the resolution to those conflicts, right? So you learn that, okay, 
he, he, you know, uh, the dream at the beginning of the surah, the dream at the end of the surah, and all of these things. So there's this beautiful structure. It's, it's almost like it's, it has this symmetry within the surah, right? And so you come to learn about it, and you come to realize that there's this concept called the ring composition. And so the ring composition in the Qur'an, I don't want to, I really hope I don't confuse anyone, but this is basically saying that even, like, it basically it starts off with a topic and it's going to end with that topic and then the next topic it the second topic it it has something and then the second to last topic it mirrors that so it's kind of like all right it gives you the introduction of the topic and at the end of the surah it's going to answer it and so on and so forth um and so it's it's sort of a cycle or a mirror image and so surah yusuf perfectly encompasses that right and so once you actually look into the details of the topics within surah yusuf and you start to pay attention oh wow subhanallah allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that at the beginning of the the surah and now he's finishing with it oh the next one he's it's um he's gone from that and then he's finishing it and that in and of itself no one else could possibly write like that you know that's not something that a human can just necessarily do it's so eloquently in such perfection in such perfection is so eloquently put together right like of course we can write a story like that but everyone's always going to find some sort of plot hole or some sort of flaw or something like that but the quran i mean think about all the people that have memorized the quran think about all the different chains and and, and um chains going back to the prophet muhammad وسلم, of people memorizing this exactly word to word that in and of itself is a miracle and the fact that throughout the 14 1400 something years um, no one has found a single flaw in the Qur'an shows its miraculous nature. Now, going back to this ring composition, there's, um, I actually was looking into this last night and I thought it was really cool. Um, the same thing applies to Surah Al-Baqarah, right? So Surah Al-Baqarah, it does the same thing for the first 20 ayahs. It, it talks about faith versus unbelief, right? And then the very last two ayahs, it talks about, it's the mirror concept it talks about the same thing and then the next 21 to 39 it talks about allah's creation and so on and so forth and so within each ring as well there's a ring it completes the same message and so it doesn't really make any sense when i'm like trying to explain it without actually showing you guys that but look into that and look into the way allah subhanahu wa ta'ala either responds to himself or gives different perspectives to the same story as well that's another very interesting thing you'll often hear for example prophet musa was the most mentioned prophet in the entire quran correct right but and you'll often find a scene and then you'll find another scene but when you put those two scenes together it completes the picture it completes the story how do we know about all these prophets right the prophet muhammad وسلم, he didn't he didn't obviously like you know th these things came from the quran right these stories that we know with such detail came from the quran and you'll start to also see the symmetry and and the, the parallels in the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks to the prophets as well the way he says okay and we have responded to him and we have responded to them you'll see the way that there are similarities in the way they call out to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you you are able to relate to it and that's another thing too is that often we feel like with the most prestigious people in the world we're not able to relate to their stories at all right but the prophets were chosen by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and throughout the Quran they face conflict why do they face so much conflict Right? Because conflict is relatable. Trial is relatable. So struggle, the struggle is, is relatable. relatable yeah. Right? And so that comes to show another miraculous nature of the Quran is the fact that it is wholeheartedly relatable. You know, like Sumaya mentioned earlier, 
a verse of comfort to her could be a verse of, of fear to somebody else, right? But the fact of the matter is you can relate to every single verse in the Quran, right? I've seen excerpts of the Bible, I've seen excerpts of the Torah and all of these things and there are some things that do feel relatable. Like you can't you obviously you can't refute everything. Right, right. Right? Of course. But but at the same time, it doesn't amount to the way that the Quran does it. Even when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks a question, often there are a lot of rhetorical questions in the Quran, but there's a lot of also thought-provoking questions in the Quran too. He's speaking to you. That's the nature of the Quran. That's the miraculous. I keep saying miraculous, but that's the whole point of this, right? It's that he's literally speaking to you in the way that you feel it within you is the way he has inspired you to feel his words, right? The way you relate it back to your life is because he put those words there and he inspired your heart to feel a certain way towards them. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. Just look at the the way the stories look back at each other. You don't have to be a scholar to know all that. You don't have to be, you know, someone that has gone through, you know, has read all the books of Tafsir in the world and all of these things. These are things that a simple, uh, not simple, a common Muslim can understand and can and can notice if you just look, if you just pay attention. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I really love that. I think to kind of bridge this gap between linguistics and science, I'm going to mention a miracle that is both, in my mm. opinion. Um, and this was one, you know, for us as, as Muslims, and not everyone, but for some, for those of us that have some sort of knowledge of the Qur'an, we can think of very obvious scientific miracles in the Qur'an. This was one of those that I did not think of before researching. Um, and I didn't research for the purpose of this episode. <laughs> just want to throw it out there. We don't really come prepared like that. <laughs> no, we but, don't. Um, I just so happened to yeah. be doing this kind of research over the summer. But one of these miracles um, that has to do with science and linguistics is the sending down of iron. Oh, yeah. And it's something that I feel like we don't ever think about. I never thought about it until I learned about it. So usually when Allah talks about his creations, he says, I created or we created in the royal we. You know, the heavens, the earth, the humans, whatever. Allah, Allah says, I created this or, or we, again, royal we created this. Um, but in Surah Al-Hadid, there is an entire chapter in the Quran that is called iron, the iron, okay? And in that surah, Allah talks about iron in one of his verses. However, he does not say that I created iron. He doesn't say we created iron. He says, we sent down iron. So when you think about the difference in the terminology, well, what does that mean, okay? Scientists and geologists discovered that iron is extraterrestrial. It, it's not in this earth. We don't get iron from the earth's surface or from one of the layers of the earth, right? Iron is sent down from the galaxy as a byproduct of celestial events. So iron is not something that we found that we find naturally occurring in the earth. So when you think about this linguistically, that's the reason why, maybe one of the reasons why Allah did not say, well, I create, of course he created iron because he created the whole universe and all the universes and everything. But Allah says, I sent down iron. And you think about it, he's talking to a human population that live on earth, right? So sending down something means it's coming from 
not Earth. It's coming from the skies. It's coming from the galaxies, right? So Allah says, we sent down iron. And then later, in the same ayah, he says, and we sent down iron wherein is great military might and benefits for the people. So you think about this, right? Throughout history, people have used iron as a source of weaponry. Even before any sort of formal weapons were made, you think back to like world history and like the earliest civilizations that they teach you in those classes, they used iron to make their weapons, right? So there's, there's one thing, but then also Allah says, and benefit for the people. There's benefits in iron for the people. How? You think about the human body and the fact that we need iron in a nutrition sense. We have to consume some iron. People are iron deficient or some people have diseases when the iron that they are eating doesn't become absorbed in their body correctly or whatever, anemia. You have all of these different conditions that come from a lack of iron. So iron has nutritional benefits for us and iron is actually in our bodies. It It's a, I mean, it's found in many different complexes, but iron specifically, is a part of heme groups that make up hemoglobin, right? And hemoglobin is literally what carries our oxygen through our blood. Otherwise, we would not be able to do anything. So there it is. Allah says what military uh, military weapons or military, what was the exact word? Military might and benefits for the people. So I wanted to mention that because it kind of bridges the gap. It has some linguistic miracle talking about the sending down of the iron and... The fact that Allah literally specifically said it has military might and benefits for the people. So that's just one of the ones I want to mention. No, I love that a lot. I think that it's so it's so hard sometimes to think like people are able to study these things and are able to, to realize these things and then see parallels and still not believe. Mm-hmm. And so I think that comes to show that belief in and of itself is a blessing because you yeah. can be the smartest oh, human sure. being on the planet Earth, and you can be the one that discovered what Samaya is talking about, or be one of the the scientists that were able to piece that together, you know, from other works or whatever, and then you see a clear sign of it in the Quran, and you still do not believe. Right. That's saying that's when Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, you know, He refers to people like that, and so that's when we have to realize that when we're able to recognize these signs, you should be able to recognize how how blessed you are to be able to see such a connection because others can easily say well how do you know that it's referring to that right, are you right. sure like maybe somebody just put that in later astaghfirullah you know that's not the way it works so being able to see the signs is a blessing in and of itself um and so you're also talking a lot about how there's like parallels within the, the wordings that the, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala uses, and then, but the spe- specifications. You know, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala could have said anything else, but He chose the word "sent down." Mm-hmm. I think that is. I really like that point a lot. I didn't even think of it that way. So, if you want to do your next, another one too that kind of bridges that gap as well is the fact that in the Quran, Allah talks about the sun and the moon, and not just their orbits, because that's another one. That's another miracle of the Quran, right? Like. The Prophet would not have known that the sun is in an orbit, that the moon is in an orbit, that the earth orbits the sun. Like They would not have known that, obviously, at the time. But that's a separate miracle. When it comes to this particular miracle, Allah speaks about the moon as a reflective source of light. 
And initially, it was thought that the moon has its own light, right? That the moon shines its own light. But now we know that the moon doesn't actually produce any light on its own. The surface of the moon reflects the light from the sun, right? And so that's a common scientific fact that we know of today. Allah specifies this in the Quran through the wording that he uses, right? So I'm, I'm realizing a lot now that actually they kind of really do just play Go hand in hand. Yeah. But Allah says, and this is, I only have a few examples, but there is many more. Allah says, blessed is the one who has placed constellations in the sky, as well as a radiant lamp and a shining moon. So you'll see with these examples that Allah often refers to the sun as radiant, meaning it's radiating light, like giving off its own light, whereas the moon is more reflective. And then Allah says also in a different surah, he is the one who made the sun a radiant source and the moon a reflected light with precisely ordained phases so that you may know the number of years and calculations of time. And then in another surah, Allah says, placing the moon within them as a reflected light and the sun as a radiant lamp. And these are just a couple examples. But in the Bible, and this is according to some research that I've done, in the Bible in Genesis 1.16, actually. So if anyone wants to like go look at that. Allah said, uh, whoa, no. In the Bible, it said that God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. So the language of the Quran is a lot more precise than the language of the Bible. Um, because in the Quran, Allah is clearly describing the sun as a source of light and the moon as a reflector of this light, which the Bible fails to clarify. So we know that this is consistent with our scientific findings today. Like we know, like I said, we know now that, okay, the sun is its own light, but the moon doesn't make its own light. It just reflects that light. So it's a much more consistent finding. Allah said this long before the people of Arabia in the seventh century knew, oh, the moon is just a reflection of the light. No, they did not know that, right? Also, the second ayah I mentioned, Allah says that the moon has precisely ordained phases so that you may know the number of years and calculation of time. And this is really significant in my opinion. So Allah mentions the moon and its phases in this ayah, right? So many civilizations used the moon to calculate time to calculate their months and their days and their weeks and whatever. So this, I mean, here it's just, it's like very clear. It's very clear that what Allah is saying is never something that contradicts what's being, I mean, what, I guess, what's being discovered by people because it can't. Like I said, Allah's creator of everything. He created science and the Quran is his word. So how could it contradict? And people in Arabia who were illiterate could not have known you know, that the moon is a reflected light of the sun. Even a common person now, if you were to just look up and you didn't have any scientific knowledge, you'd probably look at the moon and think, oh, it has its own light, like it's shining, right? But when you have the scientific knowledge, you know, like, oh, actually, no, like, but do you see that? And that's the point. Do you see that the moon is a reflected? No, you don't. If you're looking at the sky and there's no sun and it's dark and you see there is a moon that has light, do you just know that it's a reflected light or did you have to learn that? And when you learned it, did you trust the scientists or did you go up to the moon to look for yourself? 
this is a point I want to make because a lot of people say they, they can't believe what they don't see. But you do it all the time. You believe what you don't see all the time. Unless you went up to the moon and you saw for yourself and then you were like, okay, now that I'm here, I can confirm it. But you don't do that. You don't even question that things happened in history. You read a history book and you're like, that's true, but were you there? Right? Did you go to the bottom of the ocean and discover these things that the scientists are telling you? Did you go to space and discover the things that the scientists are telling you? No, but you blindly put your trust in them. So why can't you do the same when it comes to God? And it's no blind trust in God. The signs are all around you. Right? So if you're going to have this mentality of I have to see it to believe it, that's honestly a mentality that you are not consistent with in your everyday life. Because you believe things that you don't see all the time. So anyway, that um, was just another little linguistic and scientific miracle that I think is really, um, really powerful. I think something really interesting is that you're pointing out linguistic and scientific miracles because like you said... I mean, the Qur'an in and of itself is a linguistic miracle. So if you're going to talk about the scientific miracles, they do go hand in hand. And I think that when we first started recording this, we didn't really come to that conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> and so rather, because I was trying to look at the more of the grammatical linguistics of it. Samay was focusing solely on the things that you can see in your everyday life. But once you realize how beautifully they go together, you start to realize that's the way Allah's Pant- that's part of Allah's Pantala's flawless engineering, right? Everything coexists. Everything has a purpose. Everything is meant to fit together so perfectly because the creator is the one that created it. And so as you're talking, it just really you're you're mentioning all of these miracles. They're all things that we can see, right? And so it says in Surah Al-Qamar, you reminded me of this ayah, but it says in Surah Al-Qamar, and we have certainly made the Quran easy to remember. So is any is there anyone who will be mindful? And so First of all, when I first, you know, came across this ayah and I was really thinking about it, I was thinking more of the pattern of the Qur'an, the way things just almost perfectly rhyme, the repetition in the Qur'an. You often find a lot of the same verse being repeated throughout the Qur'an. It makes it easier to remember because you once memorized it in the past or you once read it in the past or, you know, it's like there. it's a repetition of the to- same topics and different perspectives or same stories. That's the way I first thought about it. But now I'm coming to realize as we're talking more and more in this episode, it's that the Quran is easy for you to remember because you're able to relate it to what you're seeing in creation. You're able to relate it to the things that are around you or the things that are within yourself. And what I mean by that is like, Sumaya is talking about all these signs, right? So say that you're at that ayah where it's talking about the moon being a reflective surface in a way, right? you're going to be able to easily remember that because you know that the moon is a reflective surface because that's based off of previous knowledge that you may or may not have known, right? Or you stumbled upon it. It's something that you're able to relate it to, right? Versus if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala were to describe everything to things that we cannot necessarily comprehend, right? It would be far, far more difficult to remember the Qur'an, right? So are you not mindful then? Be mindful of the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all of his comparisons are things that we are able to see. And then things that we're not necessarily able to comprehend, they're still very simple, right? Like somebody was talking about those letters, Alif, Lam, Mim, Alif, Lam, Ra, Sad. Those are just straightforward. We might not necessarily understand the meaning behind them, but they're easy to remember. There's not so many of them in the Quran. It's not like every single chapter begins, begins with a different one. You know, it's only a select few. Or 
so I think that's something too, is that the Qur'an is meant to be easy to remember because of its flow, because of its structure, but also because of the fact, like we're talking about these signs, because of the fact that you're able to witness the signs, you're able to see them, right? I mean, another example is in Surah Al-Anbiya, it says that everything is created from water, right? And you'll come to find examples of that throughout the Qur'an. It's also the same sign repeated throughout the Qur'an, but it's mentioned in different aspects, in different lights, right? Um... So I think that's another thing too when you are looking into these miracles and when you're memorizing the Qur'an, make sure that, or not even just memorizing, but reflecting on it and really, really trying to build a connection with it. Just realize that it can all be applied to your life. It can all be, it's, you are able to see it in your interactions. You're able to see, okay, this ayah is talking about those who are not able to see or this ayah is talking about those who do X, Y, and Z. Do I do that? Right? Is that me? And when you build that personal personal connection with it, of course it's going to be easy to remember. You know, the Qur'an is also in its own way promoting you, promote, promoting the concept of learning, promoting the concept of, of understanding things other than just learning solely about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and about His divine attributes and all of these things, right? But think about it. Prior to, prior to the Qur'an being revealed, the people in, you know, that part of the world in the Middle East we were all nomads. There weren't any huge scientific um, discoveries made from that region as far as I am aware, right? It wasn't until after the Qur'an, after Allah blessed them with the Qur'an, after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed that region with the light of Islam, that the golden age came about. Huge scientific miracles came about from, from this region of the world, right? And that's because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guided us. He guided us through this book. He guided us through his, his things. He guided us on what we are supposed to truly rely on, right? So the Qur'an brings light into dark. Light, it brings light into the darkness or something like that, right? But I truly wholeheartedly believe that. And when you start to apply this concept of learning about other things, you'll come to see that you'll become less ignorant and you'll, you won't be as in the dark about certain topics. And in the process, you're learning more and more about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it almost completes each other. It's a cycle. Like we're always saying, everything is meant to complete each other in a beautiful, flawless way. Um, yeah. That's all I've got. I love that. I want to mention just a couple more things. I know we're approaching the hour mark here. Um, but... Another thing I wanted to say is, is something that we just really can't ignore because it's so crazy, but more of a history standpoint here. In a chapter that's titled The Romans, Surah Al-Rum, Allah starts off the surah talking about a war that was taking place between the Roman Empire and the Persian Sassanid Empire. And Allah starts off this surah talking, Alif Lam Mim, Ghulibati Rum. Allah saying that the Romans have been defeated. And then he says, Allah says, Yet following their defeat, they will triumph within three to nine years. So Allah's saying, first of all, Romans are going to be defeated in this war. And then in three to nine years, after their defeat, they're going to be triumphant. And in this case, I mean, you can't even like, how could a person have known that at the time? How could you three years before an event happened, known that this group is going to defeat this group, but then the defeated group is actually going to be triumphant in the end. So that's one, this, this is just one of those things that's just like very thought provoking. Like, how can you ignore that? 
the events ended up, and if you look up the history of the Romans and the, Sa- the Persian Sassanid Empire, you're going to see it happened exactly like that. The Romans were defeated, and then after that, in Bidlaisinin, three to nine years, they became victorious. No one would have expected that at the time, but Allah said it, and it happened. So who else, who else would have known that at the time? I wanted to just quickly gloss over that one. Mm-hmm. I think um, something else two more that I really want to mention that I think are significant is the difference between fresh and salt water bodies and what happens when they combine. Or actually, I shouldn't even say combine. In the Quran, Allah tells us that, and this is now what science knows as well, when a, a body of salt water and a body of fresh water meet, they'd never mix. There's no mixing of fresh and salt water. There's a barrier created between the two bodies of water, right? This is mentioned in the Quran. And you can't even, you honestly can't even, like the Prophet would not have known this because he literally lived in a desert. They literally did not have water. They didn't have like oceans. Like that's not, that's not what the desert is like. And I mean, yes, around the Gulf area, obviously there is water. But what I'm saying is they weren't like surrounded by like, rivers and oceans and where the two met like no they didn't have that so they could not have known this they like literally could not have understood that so in a few verses i have here two written um but there is more in surah al-rahman allah says um he merges the two bodies of fresh and salt water yet between them is a barrier they never cross then after that allah says so which of your Lord's favors are you then going to deny? In another surah, Allah says, and he is the one who merges the two bodies of water, one fresh and one uh, pal- pal- palatable. Is that how you say the word? Palatable? You're asking me? I don't know how to pronounce this word. Um, anyway, and the other salty and bitter, placing between them a barrier they cannot cross. So one is salty. One you can't just like drink. And the other one is fresh right? The other one is fresh and you can actually use it as a human being. And again, between them is a barrier that they cannot cross. How would anyone in 7th century Arabia have known this? No one would have. And this again, now this is a discovery. We know that there is a barrier between where fresh and salt bodies of water come into contact with one another, but they don't mix. And this is something that's in the Quran from literally over 1,400 years ago. Um, and then just very quickly to end off, this is probably one of my favorite ones. Um, and it has to do with embryology. Now, if you don't know, embryology is the development of the human embryo. And Allah mentions this actually multiple times in the Quran. So... Allah tells us about the various stages of the development of the embryo when it is in the mother's womb. And to give a very just quick scientific background of this, um, when it comes to the word, and again, this is also wording related, like linguistic related, Allah sometimes refers to the word, to, to embryo as alaqa in the Quran, which means a clinging clot. And this is like a blood clot, essentially. So something that's suspended, something that hangs. And even before doctors knew what this looked like, because again, embryology is not something that was discovered until much later, until the 17th and 18th centuries. That was actually pretty recent. 
And it's definitely much, much more recent than when the Quran was sent down, right? So prior to the 17th and 18th centuries, doctors and scientists, they didn't even know what the development of the human embryo actually was like fully from start to finish. But Allah is telling us that first, it starts off from a alaqa, a clinging clot, that which suspends, something almost leech-like, right? And then Allah talks about, um, so I'll give a couple of ayats, right? Surah Al-Alaq, Allah says he created humans from a clinging clot. And then, and then we have a more in-depth series, a chronological order. Allah says in a different surah, and certainly did we create man from an extract of clay. Then we placed him as a sperm drop in a firm lodging. Then we made the sperm drop into a clinging clot, and we made the clot into a lump of flesh, and we made the and we made from the lump bones, and we covered the bones with flesh, then we developed him into another creation. And this is very significant too, because if you've ever studied anatomy, the bones develop before the flesh covers the bones. Right? So Allah mentioned that here. And then Allah says, O humanity, if you are in doubt about the resurrection, then know that we did create you from dust, then from a sperm drop, then developed you into a clinking clot of blood, then a lump of flesh fully formed or unformed in order to demonstrate our power to you. Then we settle whatever embryo we will in the womb for an appointed term, then bring you forth as infants so that you may reach your prime. Some of you may die young while others are left to reach the most feeble stages of life so that they may know nothing after having known much. And then Allah talks about this comparison and you see the earth lifeless, but as soon as we send down rain upon it, it begins to stir to life and swell producing every type of pleasant plant. So this just has to do with the fact that if Allah can bring earth back to life, if Allah created you, why can't he resurrect you? And this is something we talk about a lot in my Sunday school class, how if Allah created you, why are you then doubting that he can resurrect you? Why, can, why are you doubting he can bring you back to life? Another example, he makes you in the wombs of your mothers in stages, one after another in three veils of darkness. These three layers have actually been discovered scientifically, referencing the walls that surround the fetus when a woman is pregnant. So according to some research findings, these walls are the abdomen, so the actual abdominal wall, and then the uterine wall, and then the amniotic membrane, essentially, right? The, 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 what's directly surrounding the fetus. And then Allah asks us a question, was he not a drop of germinal fluid emitted? Do people not see that we have created them from a sperm drop? Then behold, they openly challenge us. Another ayah, he's the one who created you from dust, then from a sperm drop, then developed you into a clinging clot of blood. Then he brings you forth as infant so that you may reach your prime and become old. So many examples. And I, I just really feel like this embryology example is so crazy because it's like, People that doubt in God are doubting that he created them and he's and they're doubting that he can bring them back to life. But like Allah is literally detailing the stages of creation for you. In a way, it's kind of like when you are performing a like a scientific procedure and you have to detail exactly what you did. It's for a, it's for a purpose. It's so that people can see what you did. And in scientific studies, it's for replication purposes. Obviously, we're not creating human beings, but what I'm saying is that it's there, it's clear, so people can understand. They can see what, what was done. In a way, it adds a little bit more like credibility, more uh, reliability on this person. Allah is doing that. He's detailing the stages of creation for you. He's drawing parables to lifeless land that Allah then brought the rain down all of a sudden, producing life again. Why can't that God who can do all these things bring you back to life after you're dead, right? 
So those are just a few of the scientific miracles that I found to be very powerful. There's definitely more, um, but we're kind of past time here. We had an hour and six minutes, but um, what's it called? I think two more that we can just highlight before we um, end off. Um, the Fir'aun, he's often refer- he's often mentioned in the Quran, but in Surah Yunus, I believe it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala literally says, today we, as in the royal we, will preserve your body to set you up for, as a lesson for future generations. And what is displayed in the Cairo, in the Cairo Museum, I believe it's in Cairo, um, it's what they believe to be the Pharaoh's body. And so I think that's something really, like you literally are seeing the lesson that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said he was going to span out. And then there's another example um, in Surat um, um, Al-Masad, the entire surah is talking about this man, Abu Lahab, who tormented the Prophet in so many different ways. He was not a very good man. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala literally says, may the hands of Abu Lahab be ruined, may he be ruined too. Basically, he's saying that neither his wealth nor his gains will help him. This entire chapter is is talking about how Abu Lahab, is, is talking about Abu Lahab's destination, right? Abu Lahab heard about this. He heard about this chapter being revealed, you know, obviously. And yet, he could have, if the Qur'an wasn't true, he could have said, no, I believe. I was, you know, I believe in God and the Messenger. Look at your book now. It's wrong. But right. the amount of arrogance that that man had in his heart, he would never accept Islam. And so the fate that's described in that surah is what he got. Because he could have easily lied and said, oh, well, you want me to prove you wrong? Well, I'm going to prove you wrong. Here's my shahada. But he didn't do that. He let arrogance rule him. He let shaitan be what was controlling him. He was a puppet, right? And as a result, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew that of course he was never going to say his shahada. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew, right? But if the Qur'an wasn't true, Abu Lahab could have easily, could have easily disproved that one, that one section, right? That one um, chapter. So I think that's just something that really, really, all of these things are super, super fascinating. Um... So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that is the creator of the time. He's the one that creates our paths, you know, all of these things. So, of course, like Samaya said earlier, everything is going to correlate and com- be compatible with one another. I don't have anything else to say. I just want to end okay. off on a point that I, I think is really crucial. So coming into Ramadan, the month of the Qur'an, just in general, I think, you know, anyone who has this desire to connect with the Qur'an more, to learn it, to memorize it... Um, I want to direct this to all of you. So we often think about, or, or we refer to people who've memorized the whole Qur'an as a hafil or a hafila of the Qur'an. And even if they're not fully done with the memorization, we describe this person as someone who is memorizing yahfil or tahfil al-Qur'an. And this is something that for some reason I didn't think of until very recently. But hifl is not something that's that's directly translated to just memorization. Being someone who is a hafila of the Qur'an or someone who is continuously memorizing to get to that point where you have memorized, it's not just memorizing, memorize, I finished the memorization. It's actually a protection and a preserving of the Qur'an. That's what hifl means. It means that you preserve something. So when we refer to people as hafil or hafila or yahfil in the current, you know, present tense or tahfil for a female, it's someone who is preserving the Qur'an. So I think we need to think about this a little bit more. It's not just memorizing. How are you preserving the Qur'an? How are you preserving it in your heart? But how are you preserving it in your actions? 
How are you preserving the words of Allah? Because it's not just about memorization. If you, if your goal honestly is to memorize the Quran, and it's something I've come to the realization of, if your goal is to memorize the Quran and that's it, that's not a good enough goal, right? We don't just want to memorize because you know what happens with memorization? You forget. You want to preserve that book in your life, in every interaction you have with people. You want the Quran to be in your heart. You want it to be guiding you every step of the way. You want it to be the way that you see things, the way that you judge, the way that you interact. You want the Quran to be all of those things. That doesn't come from memorization. That comes from preservation. Preservation is memorization plus reflection plus learning plus implementing. That's what preservation is. So are we just going to memorize the Qur'an? Or are we actually going to be keepers of the Qur'an, preservers of the Qur'an? That is what you're supposed to think of. That is supposed to be your goal, right? It's not about memorizing words to be able to say, oh, I've memorized the whole book word-wise. What else? What else is it doing for you? Are you going to be a memorizer or are you actually going to be a hafil or a hafila, a preserver of the words of Allah? And I think, like Asid mentioned earlier, it's really beautiful how we have people from the time of the Prophet who are memorizing, who have memorized. We have preservers of the Qur'an. You don't see that when it comes to the Bible. People don't have the Bible memorized. People don't have the Torah memorized or whatever other scriptures. They don't have those memorized. But we have our book memorized. And it's not just memorized. It's also implemented. It's being preserved and it's been preserved by so many people. So do you want to be one of them? And I think that's the goal that we need to have. So may Allah allow us all to be preservers of the Quran and not just memorizers of it. Um, and may Allah allow us to grow closer to the Quran always and especially during this uh, beautiful month of Ramadan that inshallah is approaching very soon. Like I said, we are going to be doing some um, Quran episodes throughout Ramadan, I think is what we um, are deciding on. And yeah, inshallah, we hope everyone benefits. Thank you guys so much for listening, and inshallah, you will hear from us next week.